have something to say to us as we read this chapter and it talks about your sovereignty that we would remember that you work for good in eternity's perspective and Lord we can trust you with our lives because you've given us the very best your son so help us be attentive help us to remember to turn our ringers off our phones and we want to be uh, Lord uh, ones that are free from distractions right now as your word is proclaimed work it in our hearts Lord and uh, that we may leave this place rejoicing in your goodness and faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. And we are going to continue in our study of Romans. So if you'll turn to chapter 9. We're halfway through the book of Romans. And it's been a wonderful study. We're going to begin reading that verse 10. We'll go through the end of the chapter. If you just need a Bible, just raise your hand and Pastor John will slip you a Bible so you can read with us. But as we've been going through this epistle that Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to the Christians, as he's writing from Corinth to the Christians in Rome, what we have before is called the Book of Romans. We have been looking at some very wonderful truths concerning our need for the gospel of Christ. And keep in mind that in chapter 1, that the theme of the book of Romans is given to us. As Paul writes, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. And then he begins to tell us our need for the gospel. Every single one of us uh, have need to be saved because we have sinned. And he then tells us of the provision of the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ. And then the benefit of the gospel, that we have peace with God, we have access to God, and, and the benefits of salvation, and then also that we have the benefit of sanctification, being set apart for him. We are justified freely through the grace, uh, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as we are declared righteous by that faith in him and knowing that he died for our sins and rose again from the grave, we then are identifying with Christ in this new life that we live for him. We walk in the newness of life and we are told by the words of the apostle as he's inspired by God that we are free from sin. We are free from the law so that we can be joined to another that is Jesus Christ. And then chapter 8, that wonderful chapter we spent several weeks in telling you and I that those of us who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. That those who are in Christ, that means today. And as we continue through chapter 8, that we have not the spirit of fear, but of adoption. That we can cry out, Abba, Father, uh, Daddy. We are the only ones that can truly declare that. Those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we are joint heirs with Christ. And we know that the Lord, there's no separation from his love is how the chapter ends. And I brings, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm sure it does as it does with me. That that brings me great comfort. That there's nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ. He will always love you and his love remains for you and for me. And then Paul in chapter 9 that we began last week would then turn to his countrymen realizing that they had rejected the provision of the gospel, rejected the benefits of the gospel. They have rejected Jesus Christ and his love for them and he would express his continual grief and sorrow for they have missed out on the gospel. They were ignorant of God's right Righteousness that only comes through Jesus Christ and faith in him. And they continue to try to establish their own righteousness through the law. And in chapter 9, as 
It is the apostle that is talking about Israel's past. Chapter 10, he'll talk about their present. And then chapter 11, he's going to talk about Israel's future. But he's talking about God's sovereignty. Hey, you've been blessed. You've been benefited because the promises of God have been given to you. Uh, the covenant has come to you, uh, the blessings, the benefits, uh, the sacrifices, all that uh, has come through Abraham and then would go through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then Isaac having two sons, that is Esau and Jacob, that we know that the covenant would go through Jacob. And he's talking about God's sovereign, sovereign choice, God's sovereignty, which is not an easy subject to talk about. But let's begin to, to look at this and read it carefully as we pick up our text in Romans chapter 9, verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. In verse 12, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So Paul here, as we read this, is pointing to and making reference to God's sovereignty. God sovereignly chose Isaac. And even though he, he chose uh, Jacob, again, the younger of Isaac's son, and rejected Esau's, we're going to read, Paul is saying, don't you know and realize how good God has been to you. You are descendants of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. It's because of God's sovereign choice. Verse 13, and it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. You know, sometimes people will have a difficult time with this section of Romans chapter 9. As Paul touch, touches on God's sovereign choice. It is the blessing that will go through Isaac, not Ishmael, that we saw last week. And it will go through Jacob, not Esau. The older will serve the younger. And people can really have a difficult time. What we read here in verse 13. What do you mean that God hated Esau? I thought God is love. I thought he loved everybody. And then why does it say that he hated Esau? And the term hate and love here is not like the term that we think of it or how we use those words. I love you, but you, I hate your guts. It's not what's being said here. You can think back to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. Remember that he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father, mother, wife, children, brother, or sister, yes, even his own life also cannot be my disciples. So Jesus, in saying that, he's not saying that you need to hate your spouse and your children. Of course not. Because the Bible says that husbands, you are to love your wife as Christ loves the church. We love our children. We're to honor mom and dad. Uh, so uh, here, when Jesus uses that word hate, it's not talking about to hate them, but it, it, he is talking about preeminence. That, that our relationship with him and our devotion to him has preeminence or has priority over all the other relationships that we have in our life. It doesn't mean that those relationships that we have, loving our spouse and our children and brothers and sisters in the Lord and our parents, that those relationships are not important. They are very important, aren't they? But over those relationships or what has priority over those relationships, 
to be his disciple, he says, that, that you are to uh, love me more, that I have priority, I have preeminence in your life. And the idea here, as he talks about that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated, the idea is accepted and rejected. I have accepted Jacob and Esau I have rejected. So the love and the hate that is spoken of here has to do with God's sovereign purpose in choosing one to be the heir of the covenant of Abraham. Now people will read that and still they will say, well, that isn't very fair, that God chose Jacob and rejected Esau uh, uh, before they were even born. And so Paul is anticipating that kind of reaction that oftentimes people will have that reaction to you and to me when we talk to them about the truths of God. They will say, well, that isn't fair. That isn't fair kind of mentality um, that, uh, that God would do that. Well, Paul anticipating that, he writes, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And I think that that is something that you can kind of highlight in your Bible or underline or keep in mind because people will say to you and to me, well, that isn't fair that God operated or worked in this way, like in the Old Testament or, you know, even presently today. God isn't fair. God is unrighteous in doing that. We can point to them this verse as Paul says, is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. No way. This scriptures declare that righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. And one day we will be all together standing in heaven. Revelation chapter 19 says, and we will all say together, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Righteous and true are your decisions. Right on. And God in his sovereignty, his divine sovereignty, uh, has the right to choose. Just like nearly 30 years ago, I chose Sue to be my wife, to ask her to marry me. She had the choice to say yes, and I'm thankful she said yes. So we choose, and, and here God talking about his sovereign choice, and it does not exclude that we have a choice as well that's working. Man's responsibility, God's sovereignty, we don't fully understand it, but it is declared in Scripture. And, and we talked about last time, you know, or in the previous chapter, that God does have foreknowledge. He knows all things. He knows the end from the beginning. That's a prophet Isaiah says. We don't have foreknowledge. And he knew the life history of Jacob and Esau before they were even born, that Esau was carnal, that he was a man of the flesh. And so we need to be careful that we're not ones that we carry the truth of God into our own limited conclusions. Because God is infinite, we are finite, he works in eternity's perspective, and, and we don't want to say, well, that is not fair, or how can God make that decision? Because our knowledge is so limited, we can't fully understand the sovereignty of God. You know, it was one uh, famous Bible teacher that said, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. He's an infinite God, and he works sovereignly, and we know that we cannot reason as God does. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are much higher than our ways, the prophet Isaiah declared. 
And I know that our response, once again, when we do get to heaven, will be righteous and true are your judgments, are your decisions. But we continue reading here about God's sovereignty in verse 15. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Paul here quoting from the book of Exodus, chapter 33, verse 19. After the children of Israel had sinned out there in the wilderness, making that golden calf and dancing nakedly around it and committing fornication and idolatry, uh, this is quoted here. Now remember that mercy means not getting what I deserve. That's the definition of mercy. And God has shown mercy to the children of Israel, particularly at that time that he didn't wipe them out. He has shown mercy to all of us, his children, by sending Jesus to die on the cross for you and for me. And as we come in faith to Jesus Christ and who he is, the Son of God, and what he has done for us in dying on the cross and rising from the grave and saving us uh, and he has justified us. Uh, he is sanctifying us, setting us apart for him. And we are not going to get what we deserve. And listen, what is it that you and I deserve? Do we deserve heaven? Because all of us, we know people that will tell us, when I get to heaven, when I stand before God, I'm going to be able to give my case and to be able to, to argue that I was a good person and I deserve to go to heaven and I did more good than bad or here's my righteousness or here are my good works. There are all kinds of people that really believe that. And we know that our righteousness are as filthy rags before the Lord, the scripture declares, that we cannot get into heaven on our good works and what we deserve is hell. That's what biblically the scripture tells us we deserve. But because of God's mercy and because of his grace, the unmerited favor of God, that we're not going to go to hell. It's only because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and for me. So that's what we rejoice in. And the longer that a person walks with the Lord and, and the more that a person knows the Lord, and I know for me, and I know it's true for you, we just marvel, don't we, at his incredible grace and mercy. That he has saved me because of his love, because of his provision. Salvation is a work of God. It's not my work. I come in faith and receive what he has for me. He initiates, I respond. And someone who isn't saved might read this, what we're going over here in, in Romans chapter 9, and talking about the sovereignty of God, and they might think, wow, in that divine sovereignty, God accepted Jacob, not Esau. I wonder if he's accepted me. I wonder if God will have compassion to me and will extend his grace and mercy to me. And I just want to say this, that no one has ever sincerely called on the Lord and has been rejected. When we get to chapter 10 next week, Twice in chapter 10 that we know that he's going to quote from Isaiah that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord or believes on him shall not be put to shame. And then whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the neat thing about it is every single one of us that we are in that category whosoever. 
So we have the responsibility of man that we have a choice. Whoever, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we know that God in his foreknowledge and in his sovereignty, he also chooses. Both are taught. And we can't fully understand it, as I've already mentioned, because our minds are so limited. But both are at work. And when someone truly comes to the Lord desiring to accept him as their personal Lord and Savior, that I need to be forgiven because that's the greatest need that any man or any woman has is to come to Jesus Christ. He's our salvation. There is none other is what the Bible declares. And Jesus proved that he's the son of God as he conquered sin and death and rose from the grave. And it isn't like someone comes to Jesus and says, you know, I'm coming to the invitation given that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the Lord says, well, just wait a minute. Now I got to check the list here. No, whoever sincerely comes to him, he receives. And so we can rejoice in that. And we have the promise of that given to us in Scripture. But here, Paul, he continues talking about the sovereignty of God in verse 17. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. In verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? As Paul continuing to talk about the sovereignty of God, now he points to Pharaoh. We know about him, his story in the book of Exodus. Pharaoh had put the children of Israel under bondage and slavery and their baking bricks in the hot blistering sun. And Pharaoh was the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that time. And God had allowed Pharaoh to rise to power. And, and the message given to Pharaoh was, let my people go, thus says the Lord. And Pharaoh, you're going to see that he truly is the Lord. And all the nations of the earth are going to see it through his strength and his power. And Paul writes that God will have mercy on whom he wills, and to whom he wills he hardens. We read in Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. In three times in chapter 10, we read that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So people read that and they say, well, that isn't very fair. As we talk about God's sovereignty working, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then Pharaoh had no choice in the matter. And God forced Pharaoh to not heed the voice of the Lord. And so if God hardens whom he wills, as we read... Who can resist that? God must harden the heart of the unbeliever. Is that what's being told to us here in the text? I don't think it is at all. You see, when you go back to the book of Exodus and read it very carefully, when you read the story of Moses coming to Pharaoh, Moses said, thus says the Lord, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh responded by saying, who is this God of yours, Moses, that I should obey his voice? And so Moses said, okay, God's going to do some miracles. He's going to call down some plagues. And Moses threw his staff down and it turned into a serpent. Pharaoh brings his magicians. They throw down their staffs and they turned into serpents, those staffs. And Moses' serpent ate up their serpent. But then you go to Moses calling, you know, uh, turning the water into blood. And it was Pharaoh's magicians that found some water that was not contaminated. They turned it to blood. 
And then Moses, we see that he calls up the frogs. And Pharaoh's magicians, they called up more frogs. They made things worse. You know, here it is. Frogs are in the kitchen, in the cupboards, in their dough. The frogs are everywhere. Pharaoh's magicians calls up more frogs from the river. And, And then Pharaoh, who couldn't stand it anymore, he goes to Moses and said, entreat of your God to take these frogs away. And Moses said, at your word... They'll be gone. And and Pharaoh says, tomorrow. Now, who does that? Tomorrow. So we got to put up another day of frogs jumping all over us and on top of us and in our food. But that's that's a lesson for another time that we'll discuss. But but as Pharaoh, seeing the hand of God that's working, and, and it was Pharaoh's magicians who could not take away the frogs. And then when the lice was called up, it was the magicians that said that this is the finger of God. This is the finger of God. And as Pharaoh is going through all of that and seeing the plagues that are coming down, we know that it was Pharaoh that he would harden his heart. And and it was Pharaoh that continued to harden his heart. It says in Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, that Pharaoh hardened his heart. He did not heed the voice of God. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, he hardened his heart, Pharaoh did. In chapter 8, verse 19, Pharaoh's heart grew hard. Chapter 8, verse 32, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Chapter 9, verse 7, the heart of Pharaoh became hard. Chapter 9, verse 34, Pharaoh hardened his heart. You see the pattern there. Now, before Moses got to Pharaoh, the Lord said in chapter 4 of Exodus, listen, I'm going to harden his heart. But the Lord was telling Moses, predicting what he would do. And the Lord did not harden Pharaoh's heart. Listen, it didn't come until after the sixth plague. At that time, Pharaoh hardened his heart six times, it tells us. And he hardened it again to response to the seventh plague. My point is this. We see that Pharaoh had hardened his heart against the will of God over and over and over again, seven times, six times before it says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And that word hardened in Hebrew means to make firm, to to make stubborn. So Pharaoh hardened his heart to God's will. Let my people go, Pharaoh. Uh, God's made a promise and a covenant with them. And Pharaoh hardened his heart over and over and over again. And then God confirmed that decision by hardening his heart. A decision that Pharaoh had already made. Yes, God works sovereignly, but not arbitrarily. God wanted to redeem a people out of Egypt. And Pharaoh hardened his heart to it. And then God confirmed it. There's a very important consideration for you and for me this morning That first of all, if anyone's here that you've never come to Christ, you've never come to the cross for salvation, do not harden your heart to the gospel. Don't harden your heart to it. Jesus went to the cross and died for you on Calvary's cross because we have all sinned. And the wages of sin is death is what's been declared in the book of Romans. And he went and made provision for forgiveness. And he is the sacrifice for sin. There is none other. That he cried out, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. He was put into a grave. He rose again. And there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. He rose again, seen by many witnesses. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he says, come to me. Give your heart to me. Be forgiven. 
Surrender your life to me as Lord and Savior. Don't harden your heart to that because what happens is there's a danger that those who harden their heart to the gospel and they feel that conviction, the Lord's speaking to them and they say, I'm just not going to do it. Then the next time it becomes a little bit easier. Then the next time it becomes a little bit easier. And that's why the statistics show us that most people coming to Christ do it at a young age. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't get saved when you're older, or that God can't touch your heart. I heard a testimony this weekend of someone, a, a, a lady that came to Christ when she was 99 years old. She lived to be 101. Talk about God's grace. And I know for my dad, he didn't come to Christ till he was 66 years old. But you don't want to harden your heart because if you keep hardening your heart to the gospel message, it gets a little bit easier and a little bit easier. But let's bring it home closer, Christian, that anything that God declares to you and to me is truth, his commandments, his precepts, that we don't want to harden our hearts to it. We're to forgive. We're to live in this manner. We're to pursue righteousness, whatever it might be that we say, oh, that isn't for me or I don't want to hear it. Or I don't want to, to have that be applied in my life. And we can harden our heart to it over and over again. So uh, this is something that happened to Pharaoh. We don't want it to happen to us when it comes to God's word and truth given to us. Pharaoh hardened his heart against God's will for his people. And that was they were to be set free from their bondage. And then Paul anticipating in the next question, if he chose some and rejected others, if he hardened whom he wills, if he raised up Pharaoh only to put him down, what choice does anyone have? Let's continue verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So people might carry this discussion to the conclusion that if it's a matter of God's sovereign will, then God you know, can't blame me for what I have done or the decisions that I have made because it is his will and thus it's his fault. And man can seek to blame God for what he is, decisions that he makes. It must be God, his choice, and he can't find fault with me, some might say. And Paul responds by saying, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Or it could be translated, who are you to talk back to God? In other words, man, the created one, has no right to question God, rebuke God, the creator. A sovereign creator has authority over his creation. A little side note here. Here he is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16. I think that as you highlight here Romans chapter 9, and in Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16, let me read it to you. And that was something that in Isaiah's day that they were dealing with. We talked about it not long ago when we were going through the book of Isaiah, that surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the things made say of him who made it? He did not make me. Or shall the thing formed say of him who performed it? He has no understanding. Isn't that what we hear in our culture today? With a whole lot of talk about identities real important and transgender. And, and God didn't make me this way or he has no understanding. Listen, we need to give people the truth of what God's word says. That he made you. And the scriptures declare, Psalm 139, that he wonderfully made you. He wonderfully made you and fashioned you. 
And one of the truths that we do want to give to our children is, is that God created you. And he's provided salvation for you through his son. He loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. And that's the truth that we want to give to people in our culture today, that he created you. And he's provided salvation for you. And he loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. And you can trust him, the master potter. You can trust him as he makes a wonderful vessel of honor that he desires to do in your life. He desires to make you a useful vessel for him. And we can trust him and yield to him as he molds us and shapes us to clay, the master potter. Because remember those hands were hands that were used to be pierced. As he died for you and for me. So what if God wanting to show, verse 22, his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of the glory of his vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So God is long suffering. God is patient. In fact, when you look at the the wickedness of people today, you know, and where this world's going, I, I think, Lord, please just come back and let's get on with it, with your kingdom. And, and why don't you just bring that judgment? But God's grace and mercy in his perfect will, there are those that are still out there that are going to give their hearts to Jesus. But to those who do reject Jesus, God endures for a season. He's long-suffering, and, and they will be judged if they refuse him. Now, here's the thing to keep in mind. God, God does not delight in wrath. Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. So God wants to bestow his mercy upon us as a vessel for honor, for his glory. And God offers his mercy through Jesus Christ. And we can accept that or reject it. God is rich in mercy and love, and he is holy and just and patient. And he will bring judgment on those who reject him. So when people say to you and to me, <clears throat> how can God send anyone to hell? Have you heard somebody say that? If he's a loving God, why would he re, you know, send people to hell? Listen, the question isn't that. The question is, why would he even provide for eternal life? Because he didn't have to do that. In the garden right before he went to the cross, he said, Peter, I can call down 12 legions of angels. He could have destroyed the world. He could have destroyed us. But he willingly gave his son to come and to die for us and provide salvation for us. That's what amazes me. What amazes me and what's incredible to me that, that I was so valuable to God and so were you that he sent his son to die for us. And he wants to make a wonderful beautiful, useful vessel of honor for him, for his glory. In verse 24, even as whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea, that I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them that you're not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So just as God sovereignly chose Israel in the past, he has sovereignly chose Gentiles, those are non-Jewish, you know, uh, to the vessels, to be vessels of mercy, to experience salvation. Uh, the Old Testament prophets spoke of it. Hosea spoke of it. He quotes from Hosea. And in verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we have not become like Sodom, or we would have been made like Gomorrah. So Paul continues to speak from the prophet Isaiah. There will be a remnant, a, a small group of Jews that will be saved. They will see the light, receive the gospel, be part of the church that consists both of Jews and Gentiles. And, and if God had forsaken the Jews completely, then they would have been destroyed as Sodom and Gomorrah. But there's a faithful remnant that have come to Jesus. And then we will see in chapter 11 that Paul's going to talk about the time that not only is there throughout the church age a remnant of, of chosen by grace, but then there's going to be a time right before the second coming of Jesus Christ that we're going to see the restoration of Israel. He says, in that day, all of Israel will be saved. In verse 30, as we finish, but what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not obtained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, and a rock of offense, and whoever, there's that word, believes on him, will not be put to shame. So the Jews tried to obtain righteousness by the works of the law. They thought as long as we have the laws, the rituals, the covenant, the sacrifices, we will obtain righteousness and we're up on everybody. Now remember that Paul did state in verse 4 of the chapter here that they have a great blessing because they have the covenants and the prophets and the promises and the law. But the thing is this, they missed out on the fact that God now has declared that Jesus Christ has come and was the ultimate sacrifice for them and for all of us. And it is not by keeping of the law that brings righteousness because we cannot keep the law. That has been repeated over and over again in this book, the book of Romans. No one keeps the law. The law is God's standard, perfect standard. The law is holy. The law is good. The problem is you and me. We can't measure up to it. So we can't put our hope in the law. The only one that we put our hope in is Jesus Christ, who kept the law perfectly, the Son of God, who died for our transgression. And now it is faith alone that we are declared righteous. Now everyone's on level ground. Jew and Gentile alike has access to God, can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And you see, the Jews stumbled at that. They just stumbled at that. Because they thought that we're descendants of Abraham, we have the law, and that's good enough. And as you go through this chapter, as he's explaining the sovereignty of God, as he comes to tell us that those who reject him, you know, that there is going to be judgment that will come to them. When we talk to people, and there are people that we talk to, that they may say to you and I, that I don't like it, that you say that Jesus is the only way. That, that he is your only salvation. I am sincere. I'm a good person. I, I believe in, in other religions, whatever the case may be. We want to tell them this is what God has declared. Not Pastor Jeff, not you. This is what God has declared. Don't harden your heart to it. But open your eyes and your heart to the gospel that Jesus Christ 
is your salvation. As we come to the communion table here in just a minute, that we hold the elements and we remember what Jesus has done for us in going to the cross, allowing his body to be broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin in this new covenant that we belong to, a covenant of love, a covenant of forgiveness and salvation. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much that we can come and hold these, these elements in our hands knowing that Jesus Christ has provided for us and we're not ashamed of the gospel. We declare it. Lord, we believe in it. And I thank you that you've opened our eyes to it. And I pray if there's anyone here that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, call in the name of the Lord. You can call on him right now if you've never done that. If there's anybody here by chance that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you can pray sincerely that, Jesus, I come to you. And your word says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I do that now. I ask that you would forgive me of my sins and that I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose again and you're alive. Speak into my heart. And I thank you for bringing me here. And for the promise given to me of eternal life and forgiveness. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. 